Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Council Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 6145 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Jalani Tulo, Tabisodo Hoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Sudan's president expected to sign a peace deal today. Efforts to repatriate M23 rebels to the DRC get underway and UN Tourism Agency condemns recent terrorism attacks. In economics, Zimbabwe likely to import more quantities of grain and in sports news, Namibia to host Kasafa Cup in 2019. But first up, the news with Jalani Tulo. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Security forces in Niger have uncovered a counterfeiting operation seizing 470,000 U.S. dollars in fake euro and dollar notes. Officers who raided the site in the town of Taiketa also discovered counterfeit passports, car insurance papers and license plates. According to authorities, the suspect fled before the raid. Three firearms were also recovered along with products including mercury used to make the counterfeit money. Individuals found guilty of counterfeiting risk a sentence of 5 to 10 years in prison in Niger. Mozambican taxi driver Mido Masia's parents say they will not find closure. They were speaking in Matola outside Maputo to the conviction of the police officers would not bring back their son. Meanwhile, the South African Police Service Management has conceded that it needs to do more to rid the police service of criminals. This after the High Court in Pretoria found eight former policemen guilty of Masia's murder. The Mozambican died in holding cells in Johannesburg after he was dragged behind a police van in February 2013. South African police spokesperson Solomon Mahale. Incidents such as this, one has to just take them on the chin and move on. Not every person that you see wearing blue uniform is a criminal or is not there to assist you. There are many, many, many uh, thousands of police officers who wear their uniform with pride every day to do their job. Two Doctors Without Borders staff have been killed in South Sudan. The killing takes a number of aid workers killed in the 20-month conflict to over 30. The two men were killed during separate attacks on villages in the northern state of Unity last week. The medical agency confirmed the latest deaths but did not have the exact details about how they were killed. The Botswana Appeals Court in Khaborone is expected to deliver a verdict on the provision of ARVs to foreign inmates. Last year, the Botswana High Court ordered the government to provide ARVs to foreigners in the country's prisons. This after non-governmental organization, the Botswana Network on Ethics, Law and HIV-AIDS, brought the case to court. The government refused and appealed the decision. Botswana and Mauritius are the only SADC countries that do not offer antiretroviral treatment to foreign inmates that are HIV positive. 
And finally, relatives of more than 200 Nigerian schoolgirls kidnapped by Boko Haram will hold a youth march and a candlelit vigil on Thursday to mark 500 days since the abductions. Boko Haram fighters stormed the government secondary school in the remote town of Chibok in April last year, seizing 276 girls. 57 escaped, but nothing has been heard of the remaining 219 since May last year. Boko Haram's leader, Abubakar Shakao, has has since said the girls have all converted to Islam and been married off. The mass abduction sparked international outrage and prompted a viral social media Bring Back Our Girls campaign demanding their release. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Jalani. It is exactly 8 till 4 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Wednesday, August the 26th, the 238th day of 2015 with 127 days left in the year. The UN Security Council will act immediately if South Sudan's President Salva Kiir doesn't sign a peace agreement today. That was the message from the President of the Council after a three-hour session discussing the precarious security and dire humanitarian situation in the country. In an earlier briefing to the Council, the Special Representative and Head of the UN Mission to that country cautioned that given the situation on the ground, putting pen to paper was merely a first step to achieving peace, stability and prosperity. Sean Bryce Peace reports from New York. Council has for days been engaged in negotiations on a draft resolution that would institute an arms embargo and additional targeted sanctions if President Keir didn't sign by September 1st. That deadline appears now to have been moved forward. Council President Nigeria's Ambassador Joy Ogwu. They expressed optimism that President Salva Kiir will follow through on his commitment to sign the IGAR Plus peace agreement without reservation. They stress the importance of full implementation of the agreement. Council members underscored the need to remain engaged on the situation in the country. In this regard, they expressed their readiness to act immediately if President Kerr does not sign the agreement tomorrow, as he had undertaken. With President Keir now expected to pen the peace agreement, cautious optimism from the UN's top official to that country, Ellen Magret Loy, addressing the council via video link from Juba. As we welcome, hopefully, the signing of the agreement by the government, I would like to reiterate my call to the leaders of South Sudan to place the interests of their people above their personal ambitions and to implement the peace agreement in good faith. UN protection sites now house over 200,000 people compared to just 120,000 four months ago. Severe food insecurity is affecting 4.6 million people, while persistent insecurity is preventing humanitarian agencies reaching all of the 2.2 million displaced. Atrocities by both sides to this conflict, including rampant rape, abduction and arson, are widespread. I'm deeply shocked by the party's utter disrespect 
for human life. UNMIS continues to receive reports of gross violations of human rights and humanitarian law committed by all parties to the conflict. Humanitarian Chief Stephen O'Brien, who visited the country at the end of July, suggested that the scope and level of cruelty against civilians suggests a depth of antipathy that goes beyond political difference. Hundreds of women and girls have been abducted and hundreds more have been subjected to sexual violence, including gang rape. For example, a survivor from Koch County reported how she was dragged out of her tukul and gang-raped alongside her neighbour by government soldiers in front of her three-year-old child. In another instance, witness from Ribaconi County has said that she saw government forces gang-raping a breastfeeding mother after tossing her baby aside. Signing a peace agreement thus seen as just a small first step. The people of South Sudan are looking for lasting peace. A first step will be a credible cessation of hostilities, which will give people breathing space and allow humanitarians to deliver assistance to those currently cut off from life-saving aid by insecurity. As a second step, a durable peace agreement would allow people to consider returning home and rebuilding their lives. But as matters stand, warring parties are said to be in close proximity to each other, while civilian displacement continues despite the expectation that the peace deal will be imminently signed. Restrictions on press freedom have further dented the government's reputation, with a clear view emerging that actual peace, stability and prosperity will take very much longer than getting pen on paper. I'm Sherwin Bricepees in New York. And President Salva Kiir delayed signing the deal in the Ethiopian capital last week, saying he needed more time for consultations. This prompted U.S. threats of U.N. sanctions if he did not meet a two-week deadline to agree. Rebel leader Rek Macha, Kiir's former deputy until he was sacked in 2013, has already signed the peace deal that was brokered by the regional African group IGAD. Now, our question to you today is, do you think this latest agreement will finally bring peace to South Sudan. Give us your thoughts and views on email at infochannelafrica.co.za. Send an SMS on 277-969-57930 or get a hold of us on Twitter at RiseShineAfrica or at Channel Africa 1. Do you think this latest agreement will finally bring peace to South Sudan? Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka. Lesotho's Prime Minister Pagadita Musisidi has signed a memorandum of understanding with exiled opposition leader and former Prime Minister Tom Tabane to facilitate his return to the country. Tabane and two other opposition leaders, members of the army and lawyers, fled the country saying they feared for their lives earlier this year. For more on this agreement, Sifuni Somulolo spoke to Lesotho's former Prime Minister Tom Tabane. I'm studying the, the situation very carefully because uh, I left purely because of personal safety reasons. And that's not an easy subject on which to just say yes or no. Personal safety was there was threat from the army to kill me. I have to make sure that he is in full control of that kind of situation because uh, there is no way I would end up. The reason I'm out of the country is uh, the threat on my life. 
that relates directly to my firing when I was prime minister or the other commander. And uh, unless that issue is put clear about my personal safety, vis-a-vis that army command, I don't think it's a wise move for me to go home now until Mr. Musisi can clear that matter. Otherwise, everything else he's suggesting is fine. That is why I find that uh, document he asked me to find. It's a reasonable document and I'm happy with it. But uh, I also put that condition and that condition has not been fulfilled. Face to face, I faced him and said, can you clear that? And he said he would. And I want a clear guarantee of what measures he has taken to make sure that army uh, commander will not again attempt to kill me. Yes, I've got followers at home who want me to go. I've got family at home who want me to go. As uh, the questioner has, has, has suggested earlier, the prime minister has, has, has invited me to come home. And uh, I'm not going to say no but I've asked him to guarantee my personal safety, that's all. Can it be said that the tenets of democracy and good governance exist in Lesotho today? To tell you the truth, at my age, I ought to be at home with my grandchildren and my children as well. I'm also leader of, uh, of a party and I'm official leader of the opposition in parliament. And all those duties I volunteered to do because they are part and parcel of my life. And uh, to sit here and not do those duties is not good for me. So I want to go home. And uh, I I did not intentionally leave home. I left it because the situation was hostile. And uh, that must be cleared. Good intentions are not enough anymore on the part of uh, Mr. Mississippi. His intentions are good, I know, but they are not enough. Why is it that you find it hard to trust him? with all your African heart in this regard? Because that soldier will come in his, in his, in his absence and kill me. He killed his deputy. And uh, I asked Mr. Mississippi, when that deputy, the commander of the army, got killed, did you sanction that? He said, no. I said, but the guy is dead. I asked him when we were talking. If he wanted me to say so, I said, so I said, how do you guarantee that I'll, I'll be safe? I left because uh, Kamuri was threatening my life and uh, subversive in South Africa. He was fired. You have reinstated him. How do I go back? Remove Kamuri and I come to work. And that was Tom Tabani Lesotho's former Prime Minister speaking to Channel Africa's Sifuniso Mulolo. The UN mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo, MINUSCO, says the process to repatriate former M23 rebels is underway. Most of them are living in both Rwanda and Uganda after the movement was defeated by the Congolese army backed by the UN force. Jean-Noël Bamweze has more from Kinshasa. That's indeed what the United Nations Mission here in the Democratic Republic of Congo told the Channel Africa on Tuesday here in Kinshasa. The process is really underway and MONUSCO is involved according to the Addis Ababa Security and Cooperation Framework. The UN mission spokesperson Felix Bass believes there is hope the process to repatriate former rebels of the March 23rd movement here will be well concluded. The process has started, first of all, by many, many contacts between uh, the Congolese government and the Uganda 
Rwandan, the Rwandan authorities. So a meeting uh, was held uh, in uh, Uganda with all uh, parties, all stakeholders in order to facilitate this process. In the whole process, MONUSCO is part of the process in terms of logistic support, but the discussions are being conducted between the government of DRC and the M23 leadership under the facilitator uh, of Uganda, Chris Piskiyonga, and also with the Rwandan authorities. So uh, the process is ongoing, and uh, we stand ready uh, to provide all needed support to all these people, and I think uh, we can have hopes that uh, this process will be concluded uh, in the best manner for the benefit of all, all parties. Most of leaders of this March 23rd former rebel movement remain very reluctant to coming back home fearing for their security here. Some of them have said they feel more safe in Rwanda and Uganda than here in the Democratic Republic of Congo. This is why the matter is being discussed by all stakeholders of the process and the United Nations mission here believes that the best solution will be found. Once more, Monusco spokesperson Felix Bass explains. It is normal that uh, everybody expresses his uh, views and I believe uh, all people who are engaged in this process are discussing in order to find the best solution. But, uh, you know, I don't have a crystal ball to tell you that uh, I'm sure this is going to be concluded tomorrow, but I'm saying that uh, uh, from the Addis Ababa declarations, from the engagement of all parties, and from all the efforts that have been put in this process by all parties, including MONUSCO, who stands ready to facilitate this process. Because don't forget that logistically, we have the means to support the repatriation few weeks back we did support the uh, transfer of around 1,200 ex-combatants from Kotakoli to Kamina. We did that in a short notice and uh, I can tell you that a huge logistical means were deployed by MONUSCO in order to facilitate this transfer. So the same determination, the same commitment to help all parties come to an end of this process as stipulated by the declarations of Addis Ababa. Some of the leaders of the March 23rd former rebel movement have benefited from the amnesty law President Joseph Kabila promulgated in February 2014 in order to pardon all those who have been involved in rebellions, wars and political troubles. Jean-Noël Bamwese, Channel Africa. Kinshasa. Today we ask you, do you think this latest agreement will finally bring peace to South Sudan? South Sudan's president is expected to sign a peace deal today to end a 20-month-old conflict. But will his reservations in an annex to the pact, his foreign minister said on Tuesday, do you think this latest agreement between the South Sudan President Salva Kiir and his rebel leader Rek Macha will finally bring peace to South Sudan. Give us your thoughts and, and views on email at infochannelafrica.co.za. Send us an email on 277-969-57930 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa or at Channel Africa 1. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka, Na Unai.
Let's go back in time to today in 2003. Rwandan President Paul Kagame is the overwhelming winner of the presidential election. The election was the first since the 1994 genocide. And that was today in history in 2003. A strong girl is a woman or girl who knows her full potential and creates positive change in her community. This Women's Month, SABC and One Africa are searching for one strong girl to join us in New York during the UN General Assembly in September. If you know a strong girl, nominate her. SMS strong girl and her name and contact number to 33762. Entries close September 4th. T's and C's apply. SMSs cost 1 rand 50. Free SMSs do not apply. Brought to you by SABC and the One Campaign. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The United Nations World Tourism Organization, the WN. The UNWTO has strongly condemned terrorism attacks in countries around the world. This comes after the recent bomb blast in Bangkok, Thailand, and a car bomb attack in Egypt's capital, Cairo. The organization says these attacks have a negative impact on tourism and economies of countries. For more on this, Komuto Mopulane spoke to Sandra Cavallo, Chief of the Communications and Publications Program at the UNWTO. I think this is something that uh, it, it's very much an issue of the of the authorities in Thailand. I think from from our side at UNWTO, as the specialized agency of the United Nations for Tourism, our major role is to be side by side with the country, Thailand or any other country in the world that might have the unfortunate uh, situation of facing terrorism to support them in actually ensuring that the impact of such events is minimized in their tourism industry. Over the past few months, we've seen um, a number of terrorism attacks in a number of countries, and especially in North um, African countries. This obviously has a huge impact on tourism. We are aware that this has become a global phenomenon. We can't say it's a phenomenon that belongs to country A or B or region Mm -hmm. A or B because unfortunately, and the news show it every day, it is something that is spreading into destinations in in different parts of the world. What we have seen in terms of the, the impact on tourism is obviously depending on the nature of the attack, that there is obviously an impact directly on on the place that uh, might have been targeted. But we also see that there is, from the tourism activity capacity, to actually rebound relatively quickly. When we look back at history and we look at the data from international tourism, we see that destinations which have actually been affected, that impact tends to be short-lived. And what we see most importantly as well is that the rebound tends to be strong. We have seen that in the past in in many other countries and we trust that we will see that in Thailand as well. I think one important issue that uh, we need to be aware is that obviously um, an attack on tourism is an attack on the economy of the countries and then to talk of the well-being of the countries. So it is important to support countries uh, as such in, in situations are of this kind. And it's also important and it's one of the work that UNWTO has been doing to work with countries so that tourism can be part of their security emergency plans the same way that other activities are included. What are some of the major concerns of the UNWTO? 
Well, I think the major concern is that there is correct information about what's happening. Um, and I think also, uh, just as a reference, um, a high official from our side is actually now arriving in Thailand to work with the Ministry of Tourism and to assess the impact the attack might have had and to devise measures of support to the recovery of Thailand. According to the information that we have received from them, the rest of the country uh, bookings have not been impacted. There is some impact on Bangkok itself. Uh, but I think it's very important that people are aware, um, first of all, that this is a global phenomenon, that it can unfortunately impact any place on earth. And second, that um, actually what we tend to see uh, is that the recovery comes quickly. And I would just like to, to paraphrase our Secretary General. Um, last week he was interviewed in, in CNN, and I think this is the, the most important message at this point. He would say, if you ask me if I would go to Thailand at this moment, I would say yes, and I would take my family with me. So I think this is the message that we need to pass. That was Sandra Cavallo from the World Tourism Organization speaking to Channel Africa's Komuto Mopulane. It's 8.24 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Japanese industry leaders have highlighted more barriers to doing business in South Africa. This time around they have raised concern over the high operating costs as well as long waiting periods to obtain authorization to do business in the country. This emerged during the second day of Deputy President Sul Ramaphosa's official visit to the East Asian nation. Ramaphosa is trying to convince captains of industry of the world's third largest economy to increase much-needed investment to South Africa. Amos Pajo reports from the Japanese capital, Tokyo. Another round of meetings and more concerns from Japanese captains of industry. During this trip, the energy crisis, labor market instability, and now the cost of doing business have come under scrutiny. Japanese business people say it takes too long to get permission to do business in South Africa. This businessman told the government delegation that their goals to expand their businesses were delayed by government bureaucracy. We started the sales business in 2014, and we are planning to expand. The other day, I had a business trip to Johannesburg. I made some questioning, and the letter of authority, and the waiting period is six months. I'd like to know the reason why we have to wait for six months. Deputy President Ramaphosa has apologized for the long delays, saying the situation is regrettable. Uh, It is something that we will say right now it's totally unacceptable that when a person wants to form a business, they have to wait just for a letter of authority for six months. That is not on. And it is completely out of tune with uh, the modern world. In the modern world, when you want to form a business, you should, yes, follow all the regulations, all the rules, but everything must move fast. Deputy Trade and Industry Minister Mzandile Masina has assured the Japanese that this is no longer a problem. We now have uh, established the investment clearing house, taking into account all the regulatory issues that have become a burden or a barrier of trade in South Africa. We are making it possible now to move things faster. I would suggest to the colleague if that problem still persists, that through our officials here, we pick up that specific issue 
and don't make it a national problem at this point. The Japanese companies are involved in South Africa's infrastructure development and they want to use Pretoria as a gateway to the rest of the continent. Ramaphosa promised the business people an environment conducive for investment. As you come to invest in South Africa, you will find that you're dealing with a country that has a plan. It's not a country that is lost at sea. It's a country that has a clear plan, a plan that has been embraced by the people of South Africa, the Parliament of South Africa, various political parties in our Parliament and the government itself. South Africa's initiative to expand trade between the two countries has been given thumbs up by the government here in Tokyo following meetings between Ramaphosa and Prime Minister Shinzo Abe as well as the leadership of the ruling party Liberal Democratic Party of Japan. I'm Amos Paro in Tokyo, Japan. It's 8.28 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South African Parliament's ad hoc Joint Committee on Violence Against Foreign Nationals has heard that violence perpetrated against foreign nationals is often prompted by the scramble for scarce resources and not by hatred of foreigners. A representative of Kosatu and the Imizamo Yetu community in Hout Bay outside Cape Town made presentations to the committee. They were among various stakeholders who were invited to address Parliament on the issue. Zaline Merrington has more. The ad hoc joint committee was established after the resurgence of violence against foreign nationals in some parts of the country earlier this year. The committee says it wants to get a holistic picture of what sparked the violence. It has invited several organizations to share their views on the issue. One of the areas in Cape Town which experienced sporadic incidents of violence against foreign nationals is Imizamuyetu in Hout Bay. The community leader, Samkelo Hwekul, says tensions boil over when people scramble for resources. When people said there was a xenophobia, we did not translate it that that, that, that way it was a xenophobia. We saw people who were fighting for unregulated resources. South Africans don't hate people. It's only that how things are happening and how things are done. We are trying to run a business and someone just know that you... You want to try and end living there. You just sell the thing that you are selling for half price. It's provocative. His sentiments were echoed by a representative of Kusatu, Nathan Parks. He says the issue of employers preferring to employ undocumented individuals leads to tensions in communities. If you have a society where one out of three people is unemployed, um, where the majority of migrant labor from Zimbabwe, from Nigeria, Malawi, etc., is living in your informal areas, that's what first really sparks the issue. We feel that businesses often are preferring to, to employ migrant labor, which is often illegal from neighboring countries, because they know that labor is, is illegal. If they make a noise, they can be dismissed. They've got no recourse to the law. Um, if they complain about low wages, they can just call home affairs and remove the Zimbabwean farm worker or can remove the Malawian domestic worker. The committee has also visited areas where violence against foreign nationals broke out earlier this year, such as KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng. It is expected to report back to Parliament at the end of this month. Zaline Merrington, Parliament. Headlines up next with Jalani Tulo.
Thank you, Lulu. Making headlines, security forces in Niger uncover a counterfeiting operation seizing 470,000 US dollars in fake euro and dollar notes. The SADC Chief Justice's annual conference kicks off in Zimbabwe and the Botswana Appeals Court expected to deliver a verdict on the provision of ARVs to foreign inmates. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. All the eight former South African policemen accused of the murder of Mozambican taxi driver Mido Masia in 2013 have been found guilty in the High Court in Pretoria. Masia died after he was dragged behind a police van two years ago. A footage showing, a footage showing the incident went viral, sparking international outrage. The eight former policemen have maintained their innocence throughout the trial. They have been sent to custody. Judge Bert Bam has has rejected their version of events, saying their evidence was improbable. Spuam Kiza reports. Case number numbers one to eight. You convicted of murder. You may sit down again. An emotional but relieved sitting as Judge Bakbam delivered his judgment. Some family members of Mido Masia could not hold back their tears when Judge Bam recalled evidence on how Masia was dragged and subsequently died of his injuries. He rejected evidence by the accused on their version of events, describing it as unrealistic and improbable. Lungi Sakwababa's version was that he had thought Masia was inside the van when he pulled away. He claimed he did not realize Masia was being dragged behind the van until one of his colleagues managed to alert him. This version was rejected. He was surely aware of the fact that the deceased was sitting behind the vehicle. Accused 7 also drew his attention to the deceased. Accused 6 version that he could not hear or could not remember what accused 7 said to him at the time is in any event totally improbable. That accused 6 only focused on the people in front of the bucket for a distance of 200 meters is evenly totally improbable and it is rejected as not reasonably possibly true. Judge Baum has described as fraud with discrepancies and improbabilities claims by two of the accused that Mido Masia attacked one of them Meshak Malele and Tamsang Ngema claimed that Masia robbed Malele of his firearm when they tried to arrest him in Davidson in 2013. The defense claimed the eyewitnesses did not see the whole incident, which was recorded by a cell phone. But Judge Bam dismissed the claims. It is, for instance, absolutely improbable that if that in fact happened, that accused one and two who were both armed would not have arrested the deceased there and then at gunpoint. It is further totally improbable that accused one would have left accused two alone with, and I quote, violent and dangerous, unquote, deceased. What is also remarkable is that it can be clearly seen on the video footages that after accused one had left, accused two, two appeared to have been cool, calm and collected in the presence of the deceased. Judge Bam accepted testimony by a pathologist who examined Masia, Dr. Solis Kosana. Dr. Skulsana determined the cause of death to be extensive soft tissue injuries and hypoxia. The doctor explained the mechanisms of the cause of death and his conclusion that either of the blunt force injuries to the deceased head and the injuries to the soft tissue of the deceased body could have resulted in the deceased death. 
the doctor was further of the opinion that timely medical treatment or intervention, as he has put it, could have made a difference to whether the deceased could have survived. The National Prosecuting Authority has commanded the prosecution and the investigating team involved in the case. The NPA says the conviction should serve as an example that even the police can land in jail. Luvu Yomfaku is the spokesperson. The conviction on murder, we, we, we firmly believe that justice was served and we encourage uh, members of the community to ensure that uh, they come forward and testify on matters like this. This is a com- I mean, the, the, com- the entire community played a significant role in ensuring that a video that was, that was taken, which, I mean, some of us might uh, think it's very insignificant, but it projected a clear picture as to what actually happened on that, uh, on that particular day. Masia's family is also pleased with the outcome. Joe's Nascimento represents the Masia family. I feel that justice has been done, there's been some type of vindication, but uh, there's a child that's going to grow up without a father, there's a mother and father that are going to grow up without a son, there's a sister and a brother who are going to grow up or live without a brother, etc., etc. But in the circumstances, as far as human circumstances go, well, justice has been done, vindication has been achieved, Let's wait for the sentencing aspect. The aide will be sentenced on the 22nd of September. Spium Kize in Pretoria. Too many people live in extreme poverty in our country. Our women and girls are hit the hardest. As the world prepares for the UN General Assembly in New York in September, SABC and One Africa call on South Africa and other nations to invest more in women and girls because when we empower a woman, we empower the nation. This Women's Month, we invite you to stand with strong girls everywhere. Join SABC and One by signing the Strong Girl Petition on www.one.org or visit www.sabc.co.za for more information Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Zimbabwe's President Robert Mugabe has presented his State of a Nation address yesterday, unveiling a 10-point plan aimed at reversing the economy crisis and restoring jobs. The address comes as almost 20,000 workers have lost their jobs and the economy is expected to shrink. The opposition criticized the address for failing to address the monumental problems facing the country. Shinganyoka has more from Harare. Zimbabwe President Robert Mugabe arriving for his first State of the Nation address since 2012. The gloom visible in the faces of the waiting public. In a short 30-minute speech, President Mugabe unveiled proposals to reverse a worrying economic and social crisis. He plans to ramp up value addition of agricultural and mineral resources to tackle corruption in state enterprises and to improve infrastructural development in energy, water and transportation. He also promised to improve the ease of doing business for international investors, including modernizing labor laws. We must remove common law provisions that have been used by employers to unilaterally dismiss workers on notice and sending them home empty-handed, whereas this is intended to be a win-win outcome for business. 
The economy growth forecast has been halved to 1.5%, but there is some good news. May's deliveries to the state silos are higher than expected, meaning the country will need to import less grain than had been expected. The opposition, however, says the address offers little hope on the election promises for 2.2 million jobs. The movement for democratic change legislator Nelson Chamisa. What surprises me is the obvious and palpable absence of the realization that we have a crisis in this country. Uh, You go to the general crisis in the health, in energy, that is not reflecting in the present speech. What you seem to see is an attempt to bury the head in the sand. Ordinary Zimbabweans said the address inspires little confidence. They proffer their own solutions. To me, I think uh, the change of the government, simply, I think it will change everything. It's like right now, as everything, uh, as we are now, uh, things are not good. It's going to take a long time. Because the problem with this country is uh, we've got too much politics in this country. We are not doing anything on the ground. Nothing is being done. We only talk and talk. As we spoke to the people on the street, municipal police arrived, sending street vendors scattering. Many say it's a sign of the growing disconnect between those in power and their struggling citizens. Amshinganyoka in Harare. South Sudan's president is expected to sign a peace deal today. We ask you today, do you think this latest agreement will finally bring peace to South Sudan? Give us your thoughts on email at info at channelafrica.co.za or send an SMS on 277-969-57930 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Africa or at Channel Africa 1. Do you think this latest agreement between the South Sudan government and the rebels will finally bring peace to South Sudan? Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Hello and listen carefully to the good news I have. On Saturday the 29th of August, Channel Africa, together with Drakensberg Promotions, are bringing you the Muretele Park concert live from South Africa's capital city, Pretoria. Under the theme, We Are Africa, this year's concert celebrates South Africa's coming of age and includes the woo-zooing African music and spans the continent with young and old artists from local star Kaifa Semenya and Lesotho's Budaza to more modern acts like Oliver Mutukudzi and younger acts like award-winning a cappella sensation, The Soil. So there you have it. Join Channel Africa and Drakensberg Promotions for the Sounds of Africa from 1800 to 2000 Central African time on Saturday the 29th of August. Don't miss the musical event of the year. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka. Several African countries have conceded that while they ultimately want to be self-sufficient, for now they still rely heavily on foreign donors to fund some of their massive infrastructure projects. The issue of funding dominated discussions at the World Water Week yesterday in the Swedish capital of Stockholm as delegates, mainly from Africa, discussed water and sanitation challenges. Wissani Makubela reports from Stockholm. 
The second day of the conference was mainly dedicated to challenges facing the African continent. The African Minister's Council on Water, Amkau, says it's shameful that there are still people on the continent who don't have access to drinking water. The council says Africa is rich in water resources. However, there's poor infrastructure development to enable efficient water supply. In one country, for example, a person is not supposed to go beyond 200 meters to fetch water, while in another, 30 minutes is the maximum time one must spend to reach a water source. The ministers are pushing for similar policy positions on water access in Africa. Nelson Gomonda is head of Pan-Africa Monitoring and Reporting at the Minister's Council on Water. What we expect to be the outcomes uh, for us in terms of this process is to make sure that we have a continental-wide harmonized monitoring and reporting system, but also making sure that we are able to prepare consolidated reports that can compare the progress across the Africa region. But above all is making sure that we have also built the capacity at the member state level, at the sub-regional level, at the regional economic committee level, and also other basin organizations. But more importantly is making sure that we are making data easily accessible within one particular platform. Concerns have also been raised that people living in rural areas are subjected to poor services. Fiona Gore of the World Health Organization believes that data collection and harmonizing processes are part of the solution. We need to make sure we align ourselves in supporting countries in developing and strengthening the quality of this data, the analysis, and we are committed to do this. So we would like to be represented as a global platform that can simply use the data that is generated by countries and to be able to then compare it across globally and present results to help decision makers move forward in order to provide access to sanitation and drinking water and hygiene to all. Next year marks the deadline for the Millennium Development Goals as set by the United Nations. Officials say half of those goals have been achieved with regards to water and sanitation. However, countries like South Sudan still have a long way to go. It is one of the countries in dire need of foreign aid. Jenna Kumba is the Minister for Water Resources in South Sudan. As a post-war country, uh, we have many challenges. First of all, we inherited a country where there was no water infrastructure at all, nothing. And that explains why there was conflict because of the policy of uh, economic and uh, social marginalization of some parts of Sudan. So we are starting from scratch. We have no infrastructure now, and that's what we are planning to do. Also the issues of legal framework and institutional framework. And that report by Wisani Makubele from Stockholm. Our economics update, up next. Zimbabwe is likely to import more quantities of grain than had been previously anticipated. President Robert Mugabe says local farmers' grain deliveries to the state grain marketing board have been higher than previously expected. Zimbabwe is facing a 700,000-ton grain deficit this year as a result of drought. It has planned to import most of that maize from the Sadak region. There's a high demand for maize this year after drought and floods in Malawi, Botswana and Zimbabwe disrupted production. Statistics South Africa says that the shortage of electricity has largely contributed to the shrinking of the economy in the last quarter. State's essay on Tuesday announced that the economy had contracted by 1.3%.
Major sectors, including agriculture, mining, manufacturing and energy, did not grow. Stat SA says unless interrupted, energy supplies guaranteed, the manufacturing sector will remain under pressure. Senior lecturer at Wirtz University, Lumkile Mondi. In the National Development Plan, we're talking about a regional integration, particularly around our energy sources. There is an argument that we can source some of our liquid fuels. I'm talking about uh, petrol, paraffin, and, and other things that come out of oil. Angola, we know that could potentially be one of the basic areas. We know that on gas, Mozambique and Tanzania will endowed to work together as a region and strategize. The current fuel pricing mechanism in Zambia has been notoriously ineffective in preventing the country from benefiting from falling international prices. Economists say the Southern Africa region is going to remain extremely dry next year. Last Friday, the price of oil slipped below 40 US dollars a barrel for the first time since 2009. Namibia's local banks have coped well with the negative endowment effect of declining interest rates since 2009. The PSG study shows that net interest margins declined minimally over the period. The Namibian banking industry remains a tough market for new players. According to the report, barriers to enter into the local banking industry remain high due to entry costs and brand loyalty, despite two smaller banks recently entering the local banking industry. A US dollar will cost you 1311. 10-3 in Botswana, 8-3 in Zambia, 6-3 British Bond, 8-6 Euro, Gold 1-1-3-6 dollars, Platinum 9-7-4 dollars an ounce, Brand Crude 4-3 dollars, 2-3 cents a barrel. I'm Tabiso Lohoku. Our sports updates up next. In our sports update this hour, we're starting off with athletics. South Africans Anna Sochobodwana and Agani Simbine set to compete in the men's 200-meter semifinals at the World Athletics Championship in Beijing in China. Our correspondent, Gesham Nyati, reports. The two sprinters were among semi-finalist qualifiers yesterday. Anaso Chobotwana won his hit in 20.22 seconds. Akani Simbine was fourth in his round in a personal best of 20.23 seconds. Simbine is drawn to compete in the first semi-final race later today, while Chobotwana is in the third semi-final, featuring, among others, the great Usain Bolt of Jamaica. Justin Gatlin of the USA is also in the semis. He looked in good shape and poised to upset Bolt if they both progressed to the final. Mosito Lehata of Lesotho, Sposiso Matsenjo of Swaziland, Sidney Siame of Zambia, Tatenda Tsumba of Zimbabwe were eliminated in the first round of the men's 200 meters yesterday. Stuart Banda of Malawi also did not progress into the men's 5,000 meters final. In the meantime, Kasta Semenya of South Africa finished third in the women's 800 meters last night to also advance to the next stage. Kenyan athlete Eunice Sung is the most talked about athlete likely to win gold in the women's 800 meters.
and football news namibia will host the two 2019 Kosafa Cup following a successful African Women's Championship, the AWC. Namibian Football Association, NFA, newly appointed president, Franz Mbidi, confirms that his association is excited about the prospects of hosting the sub-region soccer fiesta. Namibia defied the odds to win the Kosafa Cup trophy this year. The winning of the Kosafa Cup in South Africa, coupled with the successful hosting of the AWC tournament, have triggered Namibia in bidding to host the Kosafa Cup in 2019. BD reckons it will further help in ensuring adequate amenities in the Southern African nation. BD has more. In fact, we have, you have just surprised us with that question because we have just started now with our initial preparation for, to host the event. But we are very excited. The Namibian football authorities have gained expertise from the Confederation of African Football CAF officials following the hosting of the AWC. And it would stand them in good stead in four years' time when they hold the Kosafa Cup tournament. Issues of security and event management are some of the key areas they would excel. Yeah, we, have, we, we, we gained a lot of experience from that, uh, coming from event management, uh, security issues, and uh, the list is endless. So we have benefited immensely from the expertise from the top officials who came to assist during that period. And in local football, South African Premiership side, Chipper United, put four goals past a 10-man University of Pretoria thanks to efforts from the impressive Mark Mayambela, Eric Chipeta, Gosna Timtiani, and Lerato Manzini in the Absa Premiership game at the Nelson Mandela Bay Stadium. Meanwhile, goals by Eric Matoho and Buleng Kulani in each half meant Kaiser Chiefs and Bulgani City match produced no winner, ending one all at the Peter Mugaba Stadium last night. The draw placed Chiefs in second spot on the lock standings, with five points behind leaders Black Aces, who have seven points, while Pulukwane City occupies seventh spot with four points. And finally, with cricket news, Proteas coach Russell Domingo says his squad will have to find a way to turn their performance around in the series deciding third one-day international, the ODI against New Zealand at Kingsmead Stadium. If the Proteas lose this series... It will be their first consecutive series loss in five years. But if they win, it will be a big tick for the temperament and character of a squad in transition. Domingo defended the Proteas' decision to cancel practice yesterday morning, a change-up to the schedule that has worked well for the squad in the past. And that's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at this hour. South Sudan's president expected to sign a peace deal today. Efforts to repatriate M23 rebels to the DRC get underway and the UN Tourism Agency condemns recent terrorism attacks. And that wraps up Africa Raza and Shan today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutura Magadza and Komutomopulane. 
technical producer Charles Moyo and the rest of the team. Thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or send an SMS on 277-969-57930 or Get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Mafigizolo featuring Davido with the song titled Chelet.